I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome everyone to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 4, Episode Number 3. I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. I'm a dermatologist specializing in this fascinating area of hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for practitioners. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for patients with all different types of hair loss. For those non-practitioners out there who are intrigued and fascinated by this topic of hair loss, well, I hope this podcast will be of interest. Each week, I'll review a handful of studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you digest them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study might just help change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, scarring alopecia, trichotillomania. These are studies in hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created for the new practitioner as well as the seasoned hair expert. This podcast was created for all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to two subject areas, androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And today I'd like to review five really important studies with you. For those of you who want a brief overview, a five-minute summary, a succinct, concise, shortened, compacted overview, well, I'll give that to you now. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, those of you who feel you need a bit more detail, some depth in order to figure out how to incorporate this new information into your practice, well, I'll share that in the discussion that follows. Thanks for joining me on this incredible journey. We'll not only review these five studies, but we'll review how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. We'll begin by a very interesting study of the use of spironolactone, the antiandrogen spironolactone in women over 65. Are they at increased risk for hyperkalemia or high potassium? We'll see that only about 1% of patients in this small study had increased potassium in a persistent manner. Maybe 10% had transient, but only 1% had persisting hyperkalemia that required dose adjustment. And what we'll see in this very nice study by Dr. Senna and colleagues, Collins et al., 2023, is that really low doses of spironolactone were proposed to be of benefit. I think this is a bit of a change in how we think about spironolactone. Prior studies have suggested that you need 100 or 200. Maybe you can get away with 50, but probably not. This study suggests that you know maybe 25 helps, at least in patients over 65. I'll introduce that study to you, and we'll talk about this really important concept. Then we'll take a look at a really nice study by Dr. Tosti and colleagues looking at the use of oral minoxidil in helping nails to grow. Hair and nails are like cousins. Oral minoxidil can help hair. Oral minoxidil now has been shown to help nails. This study follows other studies Two that I'll review with you showing that topical minoxidil placed on the nails helps it grow. Here we have a study suggesting that oral minoxidil might as well. 
I'm going to take a look at some very interesting studies in alopecia areata. First, talking about alopecia areata and the relationship between how a person feels about their alopecia areata and their workplace productivity. I think this is a really important subject and an emerging field in the research world of alopecia areata, looking at how alopecia areata impacts these multiple dimensions of our lives, not only in terms of family and friends and social, but workplace. And we'll see that alopecia areata leads to workers being less productive. It was long thought that maybe they're less productive because they're taking time off work. They're absent. Here, this very nice study suggests that they're not absent all that much, that a lot of the decreased work productivity is because of decreased productivity while at work. And they call that presenteeism. We'll take a look at this study. It's a really nice study. The more emotional symptoms a person has, the less productive they are at work. We'll take another look at a nice study by Dr. Elston and colleagues looking at the histology of alopecia areata when the peribulbar infiltrates are not there. You might know, for those practitioners that are listening, that alopecia areata on histology, on biopsy, has this famous peribulbar infiltrate, this swarm of bees, they say, of lymphocytes around the bulb. And that's one of the first things you learn about alopecia areata. And when you start looking at slides of histology in training, you see these lymphocytes around the bulb, the bottom of the hair follicle, and you say immediately, ah, that's alopecia areata. Now, there are things that mimic it, of course. Syphilis mimics this, but what do you do when the peribulbar infiltrate is not there. How do you diagnose alopecia areata? Alopecia areata can cause miniaturization of hairs. So how do you differentiate this from androgenetic hair loss? Well, we'll take a nice glance at a study by Dr. Elston Plante et al. looking at the differences on histology of androgenetic hair loss versus alopecia areata. And we'll review this really important literature. And then we'll take a look at a subject area that is one of my favorites, and I'm happy to talk about it today. We'll go into a bit more depth, but it's on alopecia areata incognita. And many people for the last couple years have asked me to speak about alopecia areata incognita. One of the reasons I'm often hesitant is because this is a really challenging area to talk about in one minute. And for those of you who would like to hear a little more in-depth discussion, it's an absolutely fascinating area. We'll use a very nice study by Dr. Senna again of four patients with alopecia areata incognita that were treated with steroid injections and had an improvement in their shedding. And Dr. Senna in this study, Collins et al. discussed how you could use this Sinclair shedding scale to monitor shedding patterns. I'll share my views on alopecia areata incognita. I think it's an absolutely fascinating study. And my main message is, I think we have to be humble in the year 2023 that we don't fully understand alopecia areata incognita as much as we think we do. Alopecia areata incognita is this form of alopecia areata where patients present with shedding. It looks just like telogen effluvium. In fact, it's often misdiagnosed as telogen effluvium. Sometimes it's misdiagnosed as androgenetic hair loss because it tends to happen in patients with androgenetic hair loss. We can hardly get it straight whether we're going to call this alopecia areata incognita or alopecia areata incognito. And so if we can't get the spelling right, 
you can imagine how difficult this field is to figure out what is alopecia areata incognita and, and what does it mean and how does it differ from diffuse alopecia areata, which is often misdiagnosed for. So we'll talk about this. We'll go into a bit more depth. And if you are intrigued by this topic as much as I am, well, join me for this journey. We'll talk about it at the end of this podcast. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. Thanks for joining me today. So we'll begin by a very nice study of spironolactone in patients over the over age 65. A study by Collins et al., Dr. Senna's group, titled Retrospective Analysis of the Risk of Hyperkalemia in Women Over Older Than 65 Years of Age, Prescribed Spironolactone for Female Pattern Hair Loss, published in the British Journal of Dermatology, February 2023. I use a lot of spironolactone in female patients with androgenetic hair loss. It's used for androgenetic hair loss, hirsutism, acne. It's, of course, used in heart failure and many other issues. It's a diuretic. And so when patients start spironolactone, they often go to the bathroom more. It is a potassium-sparing diuretic which means that there is a theoretical risk for elevated potassium levels in the blood in patients who use spironolactone. And prior studies in patients with acne, which is a very common use of spironolactone, have suggested that if you're under the age of 45 and you're pretty healthy, not on any medications, don't have any really kidney diseases, you probably don't need to monitor potassium levels. This has been a big paradigm shift in our field. If you're over the age of 45, you know, there's a small risk of hyperkalemia. You probably should do potassium testing. The risk is still pretty small. We're talking 1% or so. But you still should do potassium levels because, you know, that's probably a standard of care in older patients. So what about patients over the age of 65? Should we be doing potassium levels more often? Is spironolactone safe? Is it effective? Well, there's a theoretical concern that in patients 60, 70, 80, 90, as renal function declines, yes, our kidneys don't work quite as well as we get older and older and older. Is there a risk for hyperkalemia? And many patients, as they age, start blood pressure medications. And common blood pressure medications include these ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor inhibitors, which also act on the kidney and can increase the chances of high potassium. So if you're on an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, should you be starting spironolactone? Well, I'll tell you 10 years ago, the concept was, hmm, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do that. This is a really nice study because it certainly suggests to us that you probably can. We might need to measure potassium more often, but you probably can. So let's take a look at this study. The, the authors set out to retrospectively evaluate the incidence of hyperkalemia in the first year of use of spironolactone. Hyperkalemia was defined as a potassium level greater than 5 milliequivalents per liter. So there was 87 women with female pattern hair loss in this study who were over the age of 65. Average age was 71 and patients ranged from 66 to 80. 41% had a prior diagnosis of hypertension 33% had a prior diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. 25% had renal disease, kidney disease. 
42% were prescribed potassium-sparing medication like an ARB, angiotensin receptor blocker, or an ACE inhibitor. These are common blood pressure medications. So in this study, spironolactone doses range from 12.5, super, super, super small, to 200 milligrams. And the dose in patients under 40 is anywhere from 100 to 200. But there has been some thought in the past that you need to push this to 200 for maximum effects. But 50% of patients in this study were prescribed just 25 milligrams once daily. The average potassium at the start was 4.2 milliequivalents per liter, and after one year it rose to 4.4.2 milliequivalents per liter budge upwards. The average creatinine increased from 0.84 milligrams per deciliter to 1.2 milligrams per deciliter. And for our Canadian and other colleagues who work in um, SI units, that's 73 micromoles per liter, increasing to 106 micromoles per liter. So creatinine did increase in these 87 patients after one year by 0.4 milligrams per deciliter or 40 micromoles per liter. I think that's really valuable information. We'll come back to that in a minute. 10% developed hyperkalemia. One patient with hyperkalemia reported symptoms, leg cramps. There were no cases of cardiac arrhythmias in any patients. Remember, it's not placebo-controlled study. Lots of people have leg cramps. So we don't know, actually, but important information that side effect profiles were pretty good. Of the patients with hyperkalemia, 63 were prescribed a dose of 50 milligrams or higher. 37 had been prescribed 12.5 or 25. And look at this. 36 of the 37 patients who were given an ARB or an ACE inhibitor did not develop hyperkalemia with spironolactone. And only one patient who was prescribed uh, these medications developed hyperkalemia. I think that's really valuable information. So 10% had high potassium levels in the blood, but only one of those 87 patients had persistent potassium elevation and required a dose adjustment or discontinuation. You know, high potassium levels are not uncommon on a blood test as a false positive. So when patients come back with high potassium levels, the first thing you do before panicking is you retest it because high potassium levels can occur simply as a result of the uh, venipuncture. And so I think that's always important to remember. But 1.1% of patients had persistent hyperkalemia. So how well did spironolactone work? Well, it helped a little bit. The Sinclair scale, which is the scale of hair loss from 1 to 5, budged about half a point after 12 months of treatment. Remember, the patients in this study were on fairly low doses. Half the patients were on quite low doses. The initial Sinclair grade was 24 and after 12 months, it decreased to 1.8. That's a, a change in about 0.5. So that's a modest degree of improvement. But here's the interesting point in this study, is that the author showed there was really no significant difference. 87 patients, small study, but no real difference they could identify in different doses. So patients on 25 did pretty similar to 50, did pretty similar to 100, 200. So it's a small study that suggests that low doses of spironolactone might do something for women with androgenetic hair loss over the age of 65. I think that's really interesting. We'll come to a study in just a minute by Dr. Crystal Lagu looking at the data 
But this is really interesting because many of us have been of the mindset that 12.5 milligrams, 25 milligrams, it's a diuretic, but it probably doesn't do much for androgenetic hair loss. This study suggests that maybe it does. Is this a maybe in women over 65 or is this just a maybe for everyone? We don't know, but it's really interesting. Persistent hyperkalemia from the drug is rare, and that's a really important message in this study. Only 1.1% of patients had elevated potassium levels in a persistent manner. And this was similar to the data from Plante and colleagues, which found that about half of half a percent of 195 women using oral spironolactone had elevated potassium levels. So all in all, the authors here are proposing that in women over 65, you might consider starting with 25 milligrams and increase. And their reason for that statement is that risk of hyperkalemia goes up a bit at 50 or more. Remember, risk of hyperkalemia is pretty low, and these medications are pretty well tolerated. I'm not sure that I would start a patient at 25 and go upwards, but it certainly is food for thought to reflect on what doses we might start at in women over 65. Of course, there is some concern about hyperkalemia and declining renal function in women 65, 75, and 85. That's one reason why sometimes when we treat androgenetic hair loss in postmenopausal women, sometimes we elect to start finasteride. But the authors propose, nevertheless, that these low doses may still be quite effective. And it doesn't seem in their study that 25 milligrams does any worse than 50 or 100 or 200. It sure is interesting, and I thank the authors for putting this data out there. I'm not sure I'm completely convinced that my patients on 25 milligrams are going to do just as well as those on 200. But it hasn't been looked at carefully, and so this is the first study to really look at it in this age group. So we need more studies of low-dose, low-dose spironolactone. Very low-dose spironolactone. The improvement with spironolactone is mild, 0.5 of a point on this 5-point Sinclair scale. And 95% of patients, 97% of women on these blood pressure medications, the ACEs and the ARBs, don't develop hyperkalemia with spironolactone. So that's pretty encouraging. We need to monitor potassium levels. Yes, but we don't need to do it excessively. So what about these low doses? Well, let me remind you about a very nice study by James et al. in February 2022 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. This study in 2022 titled Efficacy and Safety Profile of Oral Spironolactone Use for Androgenetic Alopecia, a Systematic Review, is at odds with the Collins et al. study that I just reviewed. So let's dive in. So James et al. in 2022 set out to review all the studies of spironolactone use in the literature for treating androgenetic hair loss. They found 12 studies, 286 participants, and patients in those studies were treated with doses ranging from 25 to 200 for a duration of six months to four years. Some patients in that review were using spironolactone as monotherapy, and their data showed that spironolactone helps. But it seemed best at doses 100 to 200 milligrams. And in fact, the authors state in their study, James et al. 2022, that spironolactone was largely ineffective below 100 milligrams, but did offer some benefit at 100 to 200. So really interesting. So here we have James et al. 2022 telling us 
use 100, 150, 200, but don't go below that. Not going to work. Here we have Colin Zadell telling us that in women over 65, give a start to 12.5 or 25 milligrams. Go up. 25 probably works as well as 50 or 100 or 200. Fascinating. What's the answer? We don't know. That's what research does. It pushes forward the field and gets us all thinking, gets us all talking. But I think it's a really helpful study. Potassium bumps up a bit in women over 65 by 0.2. Creatinine jumps up by 0.4 milligrams per deciliter or 40 micromoles per liter. I think it's really important. We do see this kind of minor, minor renal impairment in our patients over the age of 60. And it's not the first time that I've sent patients to a nephrologist to say, you know, Mrs. Smith had a creatinine of 84, and now it's 118. What do you think about this? What, what do you think we should do? Are you concerned? So I think this study gives us some numbers. I, I think that's so valuable. We don't have that in our hair loss patients. So there's going to be ongoing debate about what dose works best. There's been debate for 30 years. It's a huge source of debate amongst clinicians and amongst patients. Patients are probably the greatest debaters online. And patients come in with printout after printout of forums and things they're on telling me, I hear you have to be on 200, have to be on 200. I was given 100, I want you to give me 200, you have to be on 200. And here we have a study that suggests you don't have to be on 200. You can do on 25 just as well. Do you believe it? I give you the data. I present it to you. I'm not sure. I think it's fascinating. And I will keep thinking about this. It certainly leads me to believe that in a patient that I see on, let's say, finasteride, 2.5 milligrams daily, 65 years of age, improved androgenetic hair loss, but I'm thinking... I would like to improve it a bit more. The patient would like to improve it a bit more and would like my help. Can't use oral minoxidil for various reasons. Had tried topical minoxidil. It doesn't work. Has done laser, PRP, everything in the book. Well, maybe spermolactone 25 or 50 is not a bad idea. Of course, each case has to be reviewed on a case-by-case basis, but maybe those tiny doses do something. And so, food for thought. I think it's really... An important study. I thank the authors for this very nice study. We have to monitor potassium levels in patients over the age of 45. And um, if you have an elevated potassium level, you don't have to stop. You don't have to call nephrology. You don't have to panic. You assess symptoms. Do you have palpitations? Do you have leg cramps? Do you have nausea? Do you have diarrhea? Do you have any problem? And you adjust medical interventions based on that, but you repeat the potassium in one week. And many times the potassium level is normal, and it was a blip. Oh, you had a 5.7 potassium last week, but we repeated it, and it's 4.2. It was just a random lab error. Super common. So we move now to a very nice study looking at the use of oral minoxidil for nails. International Journal of Dermatology, February 2023. Study by Alsalhi and Tosti. Setting out to evaluate whether oral minoxidil helps nails. And so they gave patients a questionnaire. 
74 patients were invited to complete the survey. 66 completed the survey. 71% were female. The mean age was 45. Patients were healthy. Two patients had toe, nail, onychomycosis. At the time of filling out this questionnaire, the mean duration of treatment was 10.7 months. The median dose of oral minoxidil was 1.25 milligrams. And you may be aware that low-dose oral minoxidil ranges from 0.25 up to 5. Median dose here, 1.25. Here's the key point. 53% reported their nails grew more quickly. 37.9% said their nails became stronger. 36.4% said their nails looked nicer. So a nice study. There was no clear evidence in this study that patients using oral minoxidil at higher doses had any more improvement than lower doses. And there was no clear evidence that patients using oral minoxidil for longer did any better than patients using it for shorter. Remember, small study and not controlled. So patients were just given a survey. We don't know all the details surrounding the survey. And so there is room for bias in this study. In all survey studies, there's room for bias. You can imagine if I go to the waiting room and I say to patients, I'm doing a study. I'm so excited about this study. I think that oral minoxidil helps nails. And I, I think it's just wonderful for nails. Would you complete my survey? So excited to figure out if it works for nails. I think it does work for nails. Here's my survey. Well, those patients are a little biased into thinking that it may work. They're a little biased in their answers. If you give patients a survey saying, we're studying moral minoxidil and nails. We'd like you to complete a survey to help us understand it. They may have different responses. So that's called bias. But a really nice study, oral minoxidil seems to help nails. I often tell my patients that hair and nails are like cousins. Many treatments that affect the hair affect the nails. Many diseases that affect the hair affect the nails. These are cousins. This is a nice study of how oral minoxidil can help not only hair, but nails. About half of pa one half of patients felt their nails grew faster, and one third felt they were stronger or just nicer. So there's limitations in this study. We don't have a placebo. We're not giving the survey to patients that were taking placebo pills, asking them about their nails. And as I mentioned, there could be this bias. But all in all, there's good evidence that oral minoxidil helps nails. This is not the first time. Topical minoxidil has been studied in the past in two recent studies. A study in the International Journal of Dermatology in 2017 looked at the use of, of topical minoxidil in 32 patients. Nails were treated with topical minoxidil twice daily, and they grew 4.27 millimeters per month, compared to 3.91 in untreated nails. And that was statistically significant. So using topical minoxidil, nails grow better. Garber et al. had a study in experimental dermatology 2021. 38, 38 participants treated the nails with topical minoxidil twice daily. It had a growth rate of 0.126 millimeters per day compared to 0.105 millimeters per day in controls. So nails grow about 0.1 millimeters per day on average. And here, topical minoxidil accelerated that growth. Why does it work? No one knows. That's the simple answer. Whenever we talk about minoxidil, people you know, love to say vasodilation, vasodilation, vasodilation. 
Sounds good. Could be. We don't know. It's possible that minoxidil upregulates certain genes. The answer is we don't know. But oral minoxidil is helpful in nails. This is the first study showing this. And now we have several studies in the past of topical minoxidil. I really like this study. I must say I haven't been asking my patients on oral minoxidil how their nails are. And now I will. But, um, you know, I always ask about nails in the intro visit. Hair and nails are like cousins. So we need to understand nails. I always examine nails in the intro visit. But, gee, this is interesting. Gets us thinking about nails and oral minoxidil. And it'll be interesting to hear what patients think about their nails. Many patients maybe aren't aware. It's hard to s differentiate sometimes. You know, you have a, a patient using oral minoxidil, but they're also using biotin. They're also using another supplement. They're also using a multivitamin. So there's many factors that are challenging to differentiate, and you know, good studies have to tease all those apart. So we move now to some very nice studies in alopecia areata. First, looking at a study in dermatologic therapy in January 2023, looking at workplace productivity. This is a really important subject area in our field. We know that alopecia areata can affect the person themselves, the emotions that they feel. It can affect how they interact with their family. It can also affect the family, separate from the person. It can affect friends, romantic relationships, recreation, educational endeavors. And it can affect work. It can affect the employment that a person with alopecia areata decides to undertake. It can affect the promotions that they decide to go for. It can affect the type of job that they wish to take, whether they're in the public eye or not. And we know that from prior literature. Mesenkowska has done some very nice work in this area. Her 2020 study showed that up to 62% of patients reported ma making major life decisions based on their alopecia areata, including those decisions related to relationships, education, and career. So what are the impacts of alopecia areata on the workforce? Well, we know from studies that patients with alopecia areata may experience decreased confidence. Not all, but some. It interferes with their ability to obtain promotions, find a job after unemployment, and alopecia areata not only affects the ability to function or attend work, but may lead to changes in career plans, selecting positions with less public visibility. We know that from studies that have been done. And of course, an important research goal is to understand these issues so that we can better understand the emotional impacts of alopecia areata. Of course, we need to develop therapies that are better and better that allow hair to grow readily so that we can overcome some of these issues. But we need to understand the emotional impacts so that we can develop strategies that intervene so that we can have patients with alopecia areata, regardless of the amount of hair loss, going forward with whatever it is in their dreams so that we may have a prime minister or president of a company of a country who has alopecia areata. When you look at presidents of the U.S. across time, the hair density 
is quite high and not reflective of the general population. So when you look at all the presidents of the United States across time, the amount of balding is much, much lower than you would predict, which suggests that hair density has played an important role in some manner of the decisions to go forth or be elected. And those are pieces of data that have been shared for a long time. But what it shows is that, you know, hair has some kind of a, a role in our social structures. And we need to understand these factors about what hair loss does to people, how it affects them, so that we can intervene. I think these are really important studies. But today we'll look at the workplace. A study by Macbeth and colleagues in 2022 looked at unemployment and absenteeism in patients with alopecia areata. They studied 5,435 adults with a new diagnosis of alopecia areata and followed what happens to them two years after their diagnosis. And they compared the data to 21,000 people without alopecia areata. What did they find? Well, patients with alopecia areata were 56% more, 56 more likely to have time off work and 82% more likely to be unemployed. And this work absenteeism translated into significant financial burden on patients. There's significant cost to having alopecia areata. There's cost to buying wigs. There's cost to going to appointments. There's cost to buying medications. There's costs that are quite significant. And studies are just beginning to look at this added financial burden on patients. But a lot of the data has looked at absenteeism. Patients with alopecia areata not attending work. And how do we get patients back to work? Well, a nice study in dermatologic therapy looks at productivity at work. So let's dive in. Gandhi et al. 2023. So multiple studies have measured the detrimental impact of alopecia areata's emotional impacts on quality of life. But data on workplace productivity is somewhat limited. So Gandhi and colleagues set out to look at the extent of the emotional symptoms that patients have on their productivity at work and their activities in general. Patients completed several standardized questionnaires. These were two validated questionnaires looking at patient-reported outcome measures, including the WPAI, the Work Productivity and Activity Impairment Questionnaire, and the AAPPO, the AA Patient Priority Outcomes Subscale, which looks at the emotions that patients feel. And so there's 242 patients in this study. And what this study showed is that in contrast to other studies, there was a 12% reduction in work productivity. But this seemed to be due to what's called presenteeism. So lost hours at work as opposed to absenteeism, work time that's missed. This is in contrast to prior studies which suggested that workers' productivity is diminished because they're not showing up to work. They're at appointments or they're not able to attend work for various reasons. But here it's looking at the productivity lost at work. And using these various scales, the author showed that the more emotional symptoms that a patient had, whether they're feeling self-conscious, embarrassed, sad, or frustrated, the more symptoms a patient had 
the less productive they were at work. An overall estimate suggested that this translates into 50 to 60 minutes of reduced productivity per day. And so when you translate that over the year, it adds up to be quite a lot. And when you add that over a, a country, the reduced productivity from alopecia areata is, is quite significant. And this is one of the first studies to try to quantify the relationship between emotional symptoms and these economic outcomes. And it identifies these key research gaps. And this will be the source of additional studies in this area. We need better treatments. Some of these are on the way. But we need to understand fully the emotional impacts of alopecia areata and how this impacts all these dimensions. The family, the friends, romantic relationships, hobbies, work. Because this is going to allow us to help patients the best. So we move now to a nice study by Dr. Elston and colleagues. Plante is the first author, titled A Comparative Study of Histopathologic Features in Alopecia Areata and Pattern Hair Loss in the Journal of Cutaneous Pathology. Another of Dr. Elston's very nice studies trying to better understand alopecia areata and how it differs from other common scalp conditions. And the question these authors have is, how do we differentiate alopecia areata from androgenetic hair loss when the peribulbar infiltrates are lacking? And so alopecia areata, as you know, is an autoimmune condition. Hair can be lost from any hair-bearing site, scalp, eyebrows, eyelashes, body hairs. You don't usually need biopsies. You can usually tell clinically that a patient has alopecia areata. There are exceptions. There are some patients with alopecia areata, that is diffuse in nature, which can be challenging. The diffuse form, there's a form called alopecia areata incognita, which we'll talk about in the next study. But there are situations where you need a biopsy. The classic histology is inflammation around the bulb. We call that peribulbar inflammation. And so if you think about a hair follicle, it's much like a plant. It roots itself deep into the skin. And at the bottom is the bulb. And that's where the inflammation is in alopecia areata. But sometimes the inflammation is not present around the bulb, or it's so sparse that the diagnosis is more challenging. So the question is, how do you make the diagnosis of alopecia areata if that inflammation is not there? Well, that's what the authors sought to do. They sought to determine what histopathologic features on biopsy are the most useful to try to differentiate alopecia areata from androgenetic hair loss. So they performed a retrospective review of their cases of alopecia areata and androgenetic hair loss. They found 96 cases that had been collected from 2014 to 2019. 38 were alopecia areata biopsies, and 58 were androgenetic alopecia biopsies. So they pulled out these biopsies, put them on the microscope, and went to it to try to look at the features. So what they find? Well, what they found is that a peribulbar inflammation pattern, so inflammation around the bulb, was present in 63% of alopecia areata patients. So about two-thirds, but one-third did not have any peribulbar inflammation. That, of course, was absent in androgenetic hair loss. There was a shift in increasing number of catagen and telogen hairs in alopecia areata and androgenetic hair loss but it occurred in 65% of alopecia areata and 17% of androgenetic hair loss. 
think that's really important that you can get that shift in also androgenetic hair loss. Lymphocytes were present in the fibrous tracts in 10% of alopecia areata and only 1.7% of androgenetic hair loss. There was melanin in fibrous tracts in 65.8% of alopecia areata compared to 8.6% of androgenetic hair loss. And there were small dystrophic antigen hairs in 42% of alopecia areata compared to only 1.7% of androgenetic hair loss. So these lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts, melanin in fibrous tracts, almost making you think of trichotillomania, small dystrophic antigen hairs, the catagen shift, these are all features of alopecia areata that we need to be aware of especially in patients that don't have the classic peribulbar inflammation. But note it is present in androgenetic hair loss, just less frequently. So the authors point out that there's several important features for us to be aware of other than the classic peribulbar infiltrates. And as I mentioned, this is this increasing number of catagen and telogen hairs, the melanin in the fibrous tracts, the lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts, and the small dystrophic Hairs. What the authors didn't mention is eosinophils and mast cells. I'll tell you why I was hoping to see that. I'm really interested in tough to diagnose cases, and when I have tough to diagnose cases of alopecia areata and we have biopsies that come in, you know, I look at the biopsy report and I'm looking at okay, is there a catagen telogen shift? Are there more catagen hairs? Is there uh, eosinophils in the fibrous tracts? Are there, you know, lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts? Are there some abnormal hairs? And I really like to get some details on eosinophils. I'm always curious to, to, to see that in challenging cases. And the authors here didn't report details on eosinophils. But I want to speak a little bit about the evolving story of mast cells and eosinophils and alopecia areata, and you'll understand why, why I felt uncomfortable when I read this paper. Where, where are my eosinophil data? So the role of mast cells in eosinophils and alopecia areata has been the subject of research for a long time, 40 or 50 years. 40 years ago, uh, some of the early observations said, oh, we see an eosinophil in alopecia areata. But of course, the role of these inflammatory cells has only come to be recently understood. But it was Dr. Elston and colleagues who really put forth some great data about eosinophils and alopecia areata. That's why in this 2023 study by Dr. Elston, I was waiting for the eosinophil data because Elston and colleagues are the some of the key people in the early data about eosinophils. But you should know Elston et al. 1997 titled Eosinophils in Fibrous Tracts and Near Hair Bulbs a helpful diagnostic feature of alopecia areata. So in the 1997 famous study, Dr. Elston found eosinophils in 53% of biopsies of alopecia areata. The authors concluded that the presence of eosinophils in fibrous tracts and near hair bulbs is a helpful diagnostic feature of alopecia areata and helps distinguish it from androgenetic hair loss, trichotillomania, syphilis, and in the Elston study of 1997, this famous Elston study, a peribulbar infiltrate was present in 62% of cases, but it was absent in 38% of cases. But even when the lymphocytes around the bulb are absent, 
eosinophils were still there in 48% of cases. So don't fret if you don't see the perivulvar infiltrate. Look for the eosinophils because they're there in 48% of cases. Miniaturized hairs were present in 77%. Melanin and fibrous tracts were present in 66%. 48% had multiple catagen hairs, this shift. So the Elston 1997 paper was really important to help us understand non-classic alopecia areata, alopecia areata without peribulbar inflammation. So Elston's paper on eosinophils was really an important early paper. So you can understand why in Plante et al. 2023, which is Dr. Elston's group, when we didn't see the eosinophil data, I felt that I needed to wiggle in my chair. So let me let me go through the exciting data that has accumulated over the last several years on eosinophils and mast cells. You need to know Elston et al. 1997. Darudi in 2000 read Dr. Elston's paper and said, no, 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 it's not the, it's not the eosinophil. It's the mast cell. So Darudi did a study after reading Dr. Elston's paper and found that, you know, eosinophils aren't that exciting. They're found in only 21% of biopsies, but they said that the focus shouldn't be on eosinophils. The focus should be on mast cells because mast cells are found in 94% of their cases. And so the authors Darudi et al. said that mast cells rather than eosinophils are more important. So Peckham and colleagues in 2011 was back looking at this feature again. This is Dr. Elston's team back at the microscope again, looking at the features of alopecia areata besides the peribulbar infiltrate. So continuing their interest in non-classic alopecia areata. Here they evaluated 109 cases. And in contrast to their 1997 famous study, showing 62% of biopsy specimens having a peribulbar infiltrate. Here they found it in 84%. They found eosinophils in fibrous tracts in 44%. They found lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts in 94% of specimens. They found melanin in fibrous tracts in 84%. They found pigment casts in 44%. Mimicking trichotillomania, doesn't it? They found catagen follicles in 93%, miniaturized hairs in 90%, and dystrophic miniaturized hair in just 4%. So, really interesting when you look at Dr. Elston's 1997 paper from their 2011 paper. Similar number of peribulbar lymphocytes, but more catagen shift in their latter paper. 94%? Of biopsies had lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts in the Peckham et al. study, but only 10.5% of biopsies in Elston et al. 1997. Melanin in fibrous tracts was fairly common in both, but small dystrophic hairs was much more common when Elston et al. looked in 1997 compared to when they looked in 2011. I like this study because it shows us that in these studies of, you know, small numbers, under 100, that you get quite a variation in data, even amongst the same authors, same centers. So we have to be aware of that in these kind of studies, that there is this variation that occurs. But the authors concluded that eosinophils, melanin, and lymphocytes in fibrous tracts are helpful things to look for in non-classic alopecia areata when you're 
peribulbar infiltrates are lacking. So the story continues. The mast cell and eosinophil story continues. Bertolini and colleagues in 2014 showed that mast cells are important, that they talk to T cells. And they showed that perifollicular mast cells are increased in alopecia areata, biopsies compared to healthy controls. And they suggested that mast cells may somehow present autoantigens to CD8-positive T cells and perhaps con contribute in co-stimulatory signals in some way. And they felt that mast cells become skewed towards pro-inflammatory activities. And this may contribute to the so-called collapse of immune privilege. So data accumulating that mast cells are not, not helpful in this alopecia areata. And so here we have data eosinophils present in about two-thirds of biopsies. We've got mast cells present in 94% of biopsies. Nasiri and colleagues did a nice study in 2020 looking at mast cells in alopecia areata and mast cells in androgenetic hair loss. And what they found is that Oh, there's mast cells in both. So they set out to compare mast cell density in AGA, alopecia areata, and controls. There were 20 patients in each group, and they found there was more perifollicular and perivascular mast cells in alopecia areata and androgenetic hair loss compared to controls. But alopecia areata patients had more frequent perivascular mast cells compared to androgenetic hair loss, but just barely almost barely met statistical significance at 0.04. But in patients under 40, there's about the same amount of perifollicular and perivascular mast cells in AGA and alopecia areata. And in patients over 40, there was more perifollicular and perivascular mast cells in AGA and alopecia areata compared to healthy controls. But all in all, the authors propose that there's a correlation between disease severity in alopecia areata and mast cell counts. And these can be mast cells around the hair follicle and mast cells around blood vessels. And so mast cells may have a role in alopecia areata, and this may explain why perhaps antihistamines are helpful in alopecia areata. Genity performed a nice study in 2021 looking at the cellular infiltrate, and they reviewed biopsies from 40 patients. They found a peribulbar infiltrate in 70% of cases, mast cells in 87.5%, and eosinophils in 22.5% of biopsies. And they showed that the course and activity of alopecia areata was related to peribulbar lymphocytes, mainly, not to mast cells and not to eosinophils. So in Genity et al. 2021, the data is, okay, you see the mast cells, you see the eosinophils. Maybe the eosinophils and fibrous tracts are helpful to make diagnoses, but probably in terms of pathogenesis, maybe it's the lymphocytes that are really playing the main role. And the authors propose that you see this peribulbar infiltrate in the more acute stages, and it's absent in chronic alopecia areata, which is well known. And so when you take biopsies of alopecia totalis and universalis, you don't see peribulbar infiltration. 
Mast cells are common in the scalp and alopecia areata, and that is an emerging set of data along with the data on eosinophils. So this is an evolving story. And so in Plante et al. 2023, they present data on lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts, melanin in the fibrous tracts, the miniaturized hair, the dystrophic antigen hairs. They didn't present any data on eosinophils. And so I, I was waiting for it. And I, Dr. Elston is really the key in that 1997 paper on eosinophils. So, you know, every day when I see patients with challenging cases and I say, where's my eosinophil? Where's my eosinophil? I think about Elston et al. 1997. Eosinophils in the fibrous tracts in a, a proportion of patients, whether it's 22 or 25 or 60, who knows? But I look for the eosinophil and I didn't see it in Plante et al. data. But this is a nice paper. It reminds us that there's more to alopecia areata biopsies than just looking for peribulbar infiltrates. Alopecia areata can be confused for androgenetic hair loss, trichotillomania. We reviewed the melanin in the fibrous tracts. We reviewed the, the pigmentation that mimics trichotillomania. Alopecia areata can sometimes mimic syphilis. And so there's more to alopecia areata than just these peribulbar infiltrates. And data is showing that this whole host of information needs to be assessed. But what you can see in all these studies is that the proportions to memorize is all different. And so if you want to memorize how common are peribulbar infiltrates in alopecia areata, well, memorize 60%. But it varies. How common are eosinophils in fibrous tracts? Well, who knows? It ranges from 20% to 55%. What about mast cells? Well, some studies don't mention mast cells, but about 90% of biopsies have mast cells. What about lymphocytes in fibrous tracts? Well, even the same authors report differences. 10% in one study, 94% in another study. What about melanin in fibrous tracts? Well, it ranges from 65 to 85%. So the data is all over the place, but eosinophils in fibrous tracts may be helpful as well as all of this data. I think it's important for you to know how to differentiate alopecia areata from androgenetic hair loss. Yes, you look for the peribulbar infiltration, but look for the eosinophils in the fibrous tracts and alopecia areata. They're absent in AGA. Look for the pigment incontinence, which is more common in alopecia areata. Look for the miniaturized hairs, but it's present in both. Look for the dystrophic miniaturized hairs because that's the feature of alopecia areata we want to look for. And look for the catagen shift. It's more common in alopecia areata. And what I liked about the Plante et al. study is it reminds us that 17% of biopsies in androgenetic hair loss have this catagen shift. So keep that in mind. If you see catagen and telogen hairs, it's not, it's not really getting you thinking too much about alopecia areata, although it is an important feature. So we move now finally to a really nice study of alopecia areata incognito or what's more commonly called alopecia areata incognita. So what's incognito mean? Well, incognito means that one's true identity is being concealed. That's the definition of incognito. What I'd like to mention here as we talk about alopecia areata incognito and alopecia areata incognita is that 
the world of hair loss hasn't fully agreed upon what is alopecia areata incognita. And that's really what I'd like to walk you through today is that this is a very challenging area of hair loss medicine. We're making some big steps towards addressing what is alopecia areata incognita. But I begin by saying that we can't even agree on how to spell alopecia incognita. You see in the literature studies of alopecia incognita with an A and alopecia incognito with an O. One isn't male, one isn't female. These are just two spellings of alopecia incognita. And so when you're looking for data, you have to punch in an A and punch in an O. And it's, it's interesting because it, it makes me laugh that we can't even agree on the spelling. You can imagine how it, tough it is to agree on what these are. What I'd like to show today is that despite a feeling from many that, you know, these are all kind of the same thing, I in my mind view that there is this alopecia areata incognita that is a form of androgenetic hair loss, maybe, that is maybe not a form of alopecia areata at all. And this is this concept that was discussed by Dr. Wachowska, Dr. Lydia Rudnika, these authors from Poland, which have proposed that maybe this is a form of telogen effluvium occurring in, occurring in patients with androgenetic hair loss. There's some that view that, no, this is not a form of androgenetic hair loss. Yes, it's more common in androgenetic hair loss, but it's a form of alopecia areata. That's a telogen effluvium, that, and that's this form that was described by Dr. Rebora in 1987. And in many ways, these two forms of alopecia areata incognita should be the same. But I view them as separately because I think there is some data that there's this type of alopecia areata that sheds that may, just over time, may cause a patch of alopecia areata and I call that the alopecia areata incognita dystrophica form of rebora. And I agree with Dr. Rakowska, Dr. Rudnika, that you know, maybe there is this form of alopecia areata incognita that never forms a patch. It's not alopecia areata at all. And then there's this form of diffuse and total alopecia that was proposed by Sato Kawamura in the journal Dermatology where patients rapidly lose hair, massive amounts of hair. Some patients almost go bald, and then they quickly regrow hair. These patients develop broken hairs. They develop exclamation mark hairs a little later on, but they regrow hair rapidly. And some have said this is alopecia areata incognita. I think this is very different than what we view alopecia areata incognita as. And I think this is its own form of alopecia areata diffuse that, that regrows very quickly. And then there's a truly a diffuse form of alopecia areata with exclamation mark hairs, with broken hairs. So I'd like to walk you through this journey. As I mentioned in the introduction, people have asked me to speak about alopecia areata incognita. And to speak about alopecia areata incognita, I think needs quite a bit of uh, breath because the world cannot agree on what is alopecia areata incognita. And so if you're going to put forth some ideas about, you know, what is this? You need to develop your argument. 
So what I'd like to show you is that maybe this form of alopecia areata incognita that Rakowska proposes, what I call alopecia areata incognita androgenetica of Rakowska and Rudnika, is maybe a form of androgenetic hair loss with shedding, a type of almost telogen effluvium. It's questionable about whether it's truly steroid responsive or not. Maybe it is. Who knows? Rakowska and colleagues propose it's not alopecia areata. This alopecia areata incognita form of rebora seems to be steroid responsive. This acute, diffuse, and total alopecia, which Sato Kawamura proposed, rapidly causes hair loss, rapidly grows back. And the authors say they don't, they don't think steroids did anything, even though they gave patients steroids. They're not sure steroids did anything. And then we have diffuse alopecia areata where patients are steroid responsive. So, I view these four forms, and I truly think in 2023, we are just still quite lost about what truly is alopecia areata incognita. We're not totally lost, but I think we can't be overconfident that we understand these, these issues. I think we understand alopecia areata incognito, incognita a little bit in terms of it presents with these yellow dots. It presents with these tiny hairs that are S-shaped, wiggly little hairs. But let's dive into it. Then we'll come back to our study by Collins et al. in 2023, and we'll review that. But I want to take you through this fascinating story of alopecia areata incognita, if you're interested. So Dr. Rabora proposed in 1987 that there's this form of alopecia areata that doesn't fit the descriptions of Patchy alopecia areata, alopecia totalis, alopecia universalis. And so he hypothesized that this is a form of alopecia areata that develops in women with androgenetic hair loss. Sato Kawamura published a study in 20, 2002 saying that they have discovered this form of acute, diffuse, and total alopecia of the female scalp, and they propose this new name. They describe patients which lost hair rapidly within three months, and then recovered very quickly. And there were nine patients in the Sato Kawamura study, and they called it acute, diffuse, and total alopecia of the female scalp. This rapidly progressing form of alopecia areata with good prognosis because it grows back. Dr. Rabora wrote in and said, this is alopecia areata incognita. But in the Sato Kawamura study, patients lost massive amounts of hair within three months. Some patients did almost become completely bald, and they shed from every area of the scalp. There were no exclamation point hairs at the beginning of the disease, but there were exclamation mark hairs later on in the disease. So it truly had features of alopecia areata. And in this study, five of the nine cases showed eosinophils. And as we'll see in just a minute, we don't often see eosinophils in what we've come to see as alopecia areata incognita. Which leads me to believe that this study in 2002, this acute diffuse and total alopecia, is a form of diffuse alopecia areata. The authors treated patients with systemic, oral, and intramuscular steroids. Regrowth occurred in all patients, in most of the patients, but the authors said it's not really clear any of these treatments had a clear impact. That maybe this is what the disease was going to do. Eight of the nine patients regrew completely. They recovered completely. And two of them went on to have a relapse again. 
And so Rabora wrote in and said, this is no need to rename this acute diffuse and total alopecia of the female scalp. Don't propose a new name. This is alopecia areata incognita. Inui and colleagues published a study after that looking at the trichoscopy of acute, diffuse, and total alopecia of the female scalp and found that there were black dots in 18 patients, exclamation mark hairs in 13, broken hairs in 19, yellow dots in 17, key features of alopecia areata. And as we'll see as we go through this story, we don't usually see this degree of exclamation mark hairs, broken hairs, in what I view as alopecia areata incognita. And so I think this 2002 study is not fitting the definition of alopecia areata incognita. I think it's a type of diffuse alopecia areata. Tosti et al. performed a very important study, which was uh, really important to the literature in 2008, titled The Role of Scalp Dermoscopy in the Diagnosis of Alopecia Areata Incognita. So what do we see on dermoscopy? Well, her group identified 58 female patients and 12 males with alopecia areata incognita, presenting within two months of hair loss, and they found yellow dots. Yellow dots was the theme of Tosti et al. 2008. They varied in size and color, and they were evident within the follicular ostium in hairs that, uh, in follicles that were devoid of a hair and follicles that had a hair. In addition to the yellow dots, there were these tiny regrowing hairs, two to four millimeters in length. And yellow dots and these tiny regrowing hairs are really the key features of alopecia areata incognita. But Dr. Tosti also found exclamation mark hairs, black dots in a small percentage, 28.6%. So features of true alopecia areata in 28.6%. But most patients in alopecia areata incognita did not have these findings of exclamation mark hairs, black dots. On histology, they found that there was more vellus hairs, there was more telogen hairs, some of the follicular streamers had lymphocytes. They didn't see eosinophils. And we've reviewed from Dr. Elston's studies, we reviewed from the study in dermatology with acute, diffuse, and total alopecia of the scalp that eosinophils can be present in some alopecia areata, but eosinophils were not here in Tosti's study. But what they did find is lymphocytes around small vellus hairs in the papillary and middermis, not in the deep dermis and sub-Q, but in the papillary dermis. And Dr. Tosti and colleagues proposed that this subtle lymphocytic infiltrate around miniaturized hairs and tiny hairs are suggestive of the diagnosis of alopecia areata incognita. So they propose that we need to suspect alopecia areata incognita when you have a telogen effluvium-like presentation with no clear triggers and trichoscopy shows yellow dots and short hairs. So Rakowska put forth a study in 2009, which I really, really like. This is Dr. Rakowska, last author, Dr. Lydia Rudnika. These are authors from Poland that, together with Dr. Tosti and others, have played a huge role in our understanding of many hair diseases and especially the trichoscopy of hair disorders. I love this paper. Rakowska and colleagues changed things when they proposed that alopecia areata incognita is a type of telogen effluvium. You heard it right. It's a type of telogen effluvium that develops in patients with androgenetic alopecia. And they propose in their study 
and they write in their paper very politely. Dr. Wachowski, Dr. Runika, uh, Dr. Tosti, these are colleagues, these are friends. They write, we do not agree that the disease observed by Tosti et al. is within the spectrum of alopecia areata. I love this. I love this. This kind of healthy debate is so important. Remember, we cannot agree on the spelling of alopecia areata incognita or incognito that we need this kind of healthy debate. So Rakowski and colleagues reviewed 332 female patients in their group, and they stated that it was not possible to establish a diagnosis in 24 of their patients with rapid effluvium and diffuse thinning. Yellow dots were seen in the frontal area, mainly, although they were seen over the entire scalp, and they started a few weeks after hair loss, but note the predominance of the frontal area. They found short, thin, pigmented hairs, regardless of therapy, regardless of treatment. And so they proposed this term, there's some acute hair miniaturization. And the histology is not in keeping with alopecia areata. Peribulbar lymphotrits were sparse and not present in all patients, despite having active disease. And histology showed miniaturization and yellow dots. And they felt that the yellow dots may correspond to keratinaceous material in the follicular ostea. But the disease was present in the frontal area. So Rakowska and Rudnika are proposing that this must be a form of androgenetic hair loss. You see these yellow dots mostly in the front. And they propose the term acute hair miniaturization or tosti alopecia. It's, uh, you know, a very nice report. They're saying, you know, we disagree with Dr. Tosti and we're going to call it tosti alopecia. So Rakowska proposed this is a subtype of telogen effluvium. Alopecia areata incognita is a subtype of telogen effluvium that develops in women with androgenetic hair loss. It differs from alopecia areata. It affects the frontal area. It's associated with follicular miniaturization and has a good prognosis for regrowth, maybe regardless of treatment. How does it differ from alopecia areata? Well, it doesn't occur in young patients. It doesn't have an equal onset of male and females like alopecia areata does. It doesn't tend to involve eyebrows and eyelashes, according to how they view it. It doesn't coexist with other autoimmune diseases, how they view it. Alopecia areata incognita, in their mind, doesn't go on to develop alopecia totalis, and it has no trichoscopy features of alopecia areata. It doesn't have these black dots. It doesn't have these exclamation mark hairs. So according to Rakowska and Rudnika, alopecia areata incognita has a rapid onset, mainly the frontal area, good prognosis regardless of treatment, has increased telogen hairs and miniaturized hairs on biopsies, and develops in females with androgenetic hair loss. And so they propose these features, that when you think of alopecia areata incognito, look for the yellow dots, these empty follicles packed with keratinaceous material, and look for these wiggly squiggly hairs, which they call S-shaped hairs. Some of the wiggly squiggly hairs have a dark part at the bottom, which they call tadpoles, tadpole hairs. And they're darkly pigmented. These S-shaped hairs of different lengths are darkly pigmented, even in patients with gray hairs. And so these wiggly squiggly hairs, these yellow dots, these tadpole hairs, and sometimes the wiggly squiggly hairs even look like pigtail hairs, which are also a feature of rapidly regrowing hairs. 
And they also propose there's these dark lines. There's these hairs that just look like lines. And they're dark. But they're thin and short. And these are a feature of alopecia areata incognita. And this differs from the upright regrowing hairs that we see in telogen effluvium, which are pointy and growing upwards from the scalp. So in alopecia areata incognita, we have these S-shaped hairs, these wiggly squiggly hairs, whereas in telogen effluvium, we have these upright regrowing hairs. So the, the data evolves, and Molina and colleagues come in 2011 with another paper, alopecia areata incognita. They described a 23-year-old Brazilian woman presenting with rapid hair loss. The pull test was positive. Trichoscopy had yellow dots. The biopsy showed a catagen-telogen shift. And in their paper, they show massive amounts of hair loss, which grew rapidly with clobetazole. And they propose this is alopecia areata incognita. And Rabora wrote in and stated in his reply to the authors that Maybe that's not alopecia areata incognita. Maybe that's a diffuse alopecia areata. And so in these forms of alopecia areata where you have massive amounts of hair loss, exclamation mark hairs, black dots, that maybe this is not fitting the term alopecia areata incognita. Maybe it's fitting the term diffuse alopecia areata, which is a form of alopecia areata where you have hair loss all over the scalp. So Trube and colleagues published a paper in 2015 titled Acute, Diffuse, and Total Alopecia of the Female Scalp Associated with Borrelia Infection. Keeping this name, Acute, Diffuse, and Total Alopecia of the Female Scalp in the literature, which we heard about in earlier days. And proposed that this type of alopecia areata incognita. But really this is a form of diffuse alopecia areata in my mind. They develop, they have a patient 65 years of age developing alopecia areata after Borrelia infection. The patient was treated with ceftriaxone and clobetazole and dramatically improved hair. But in my mind, that is not alopecia areata incognita. That fits the definition of acute, diffuse, and total alopecia, which is this type of diffuse alopecia areata that falls out quickly, dramatically, and regrows back quickly. So then Dr. Piracini and colleagues, first author Alessandrini, published a nice study in 2019, again looking at alopecia areata incognita. And how does it compare with diffuse alopecia areata? And so they set out to compare alopecia areata incognita and diffuse alopecia areata. What they found is that diffuse alopecia areata had more involvement in the parietal and the temporal regions and alopecia areata incognita mainly affected the occipital, occipital and parietal scalp. In contrast to Rakowska's study suggesting that alopecia areata incognita affects the front. Here, Dr. Piercini and colleagues are suggesting it affects more of the back. So more debate, more controversy, more lack of clarity in this fascinating field of what is alopecia areata incognita. But their histology was very much in keeping with alopecia areata incognita, and so was their trichoscopy. They showed that alopecia areata incognita has yellow dots, vellus hairs, small hairs, whereas diffuse alopecia areata, if you're going to use that term, has black dots and dystrophic hairs. 95% of patients with alopecia areata incognita had androgenetic hair loss. 
suggesting there's something very special about the relationship between androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata incognita. Remember, Dr. Rakowska and colleagues, Dr. Rudnika, feel that alopecia areata incognita is a form of androgenetic hair loss happening in women where they present with this telogen effluvium-like presentation. So in Pierachini's study, they show very nicely some images which are available free online, so do check it out. The classic features of alopecia areata incognita, these hairs of different lengths, uh, different caliber in androgenetic hair loss, but these thin hairs that are regrowing, squiggly wiggly hairs, S-shaped hairs, and here's a pigtail hair. These are features of alopecia areata incognita in contrast to diffuse alopecia areata where you have broken hairs, dystrophic hairs, the more classic features of alopecia areata diffusa. And they show that the occipital area, the parietal area, is much more affected in this form. In their view, the pathology showed an increase in catagen and telogen hairs, infiltrates around the hair follicles in the upper dermis, very similar to Dr. Tosti's study. Not inflammation in the bulb deep down in the deep dermis sub-Q, but inflammation high up, and hair follicle ostea that are plugged, and miniaturized hairs. They treated them with steroids and the patients got better, but they also treated patients with alopecia areata incognita with minoxidil. And so, and finasteride in 10 patients. So it's difficult to know where the improvements from the steroids or where the improvements from minoxidil. Whereas in the diffuse alopecia areata patients, only 24% had androgenetic hair loss. The parietal areas and the temporal regions were somewhat involved. And the inflammation was deep down, very classic in, in its presentation, mimicking what we know occurs in typical alopecia areata. And they treated patients again with clobetazole. And in this, patients with androgenetic hair loss, they treated them with minoxidil. So I wanted to review that with you because we have different literature on what is alopecia areata incognita and different literature on what is acute diffuse and total alopecia and diffuse alopecia areata. There's enough data to suggest that maybe we can't neatly package these. Rakowska and colleagues propose that there's this form of alopecia areata incognita, which patients present with shedding, mostly in the front, yellow dots in the front, and it occurs in patients with androgenetic hair loss. You don't see features of alopecia areata on trichoscopy like black dots and broken hairs. Rakowska and colleagues feel that well, it's not clear it really responds to typical therapies for alopecia areata. Many groups have proposed this alopecia areata incognita form where it starts out with shedding and uh, maybe there's some dystrophic hairs that you see in a hair collection if you collect hairs from a wash. And some of these patients over time do develop patches of alopecia areata. And I call that the alopecia areata incognita dystrophica form of verbora because I think there's evidence that there's an acute shedding form of alopecia areata which could go on to develop alopecia areata. There's a chance it can go on to develop alopecia areata. And that would differ from Rakowska's form. Dr. Rakowska and Lydia Runica would say 
that alopecia areata incognita is not a form of alopecia areata. So it's not going to go on to develop alopecia areata circles. So do we have these two forms of diffuse shedding? Maybe we do. Because many groups are suggesting that alopecia areata incognita is responsive to steroids. But we don't know for sure. But I do think that there's this form of rapidly lost, rapidly losing alopecia areata and rapidly regrowing. That's this acute diffuse and total alopecia. And that form has good prognosis. Patients lose massive amount of hair, almost go bald, and then they regrow it. And Sato Kawamura tell us in their paper, you know, we use steroids and, and even systemic steroids. We're not sure if any of this did anything because it had a chance to regrow on its own. Is this form steroid responsive? I don't know, but I think we have to be careful to say, yeah, it's it grows with steroids, put steroids on the scalp. There's at least some evidence that it just regrows on its own. And then we truly have this form of alopecia areata diffusa, which is a diffuse form of alopecia areata with broken hairs, exclamation mark hairs, that is treated with typical treatments. So I think, I think we need to keep a healthy mindset about what all this means. Is there different forms of alopecia areata incognita? Many authors would say, no, we don't need to do this subgrouping, but I think we do. So Collins and colleagues published this nice paper in 2022 December titled Alopecia Areata Incognita, Clinical Characteristics and Use of the Sinclair Shedding Scale. They reported four patients with alopecia areata incognita at their clinic. These were all females, average age was 45 years of age, and they had been shedding for many, many years. Triggers of telogen effluvium were ruled out. The diagnosis and differential diagnosis included female pattern hair loss and telogen effluvium, chronic telogen effluvium. They didn't get better with oral minoxidil. They didn't get better with spironolactone. And on examination, they had a normal density of 5 to 6 centimeter terminal hairs in the top, decreased density in hairs distally. Trichoscopy was not helpful in their study. Pathology was not helpful. And so they evaluated hair shedding with the Sinclair Shedding Scale, which is a standardized way that can evaluate shedding. And patients point to, this is how much shedding I have when I wash my hair. This is how much shedding I have on a non-wash day. And these four patients had grade 5, 6 shedding. They had significant shedding. But when Dr. Senna and her group performed steroid injections monthly, the shedding diminished. Patients converted from high shedding on the Sinclair share scale to low shedding. One patient went on to develop a few small patches of classic alopecia areata. That improved. So a nice study of what the authors propose is alopecia areata incognita, what I would call alopecia areata incognita dystrophica of Rebora. This One of these patients developed alopecia areata patch. They responded to steroid injections. What do we make of this? Is this the same type that Rakowska described, where mainly the frontal area is affected and it's a form of androgenetic hair loss? Or is this a form that Rebora imagined in his definition in 1987? So I think we need to keep this discussion going. Uh, we have Rakowska suggesting AAI is a disease that affects the frontal scalp, and it's a type of alopecia uh, androgenetica, AGA. We have other authors suggesting that 
Piercini suggesting that it's more likely to affect the back and the sides. And it's a type of alopecia areata, responds to steroids. I don't think we know. We can't even agree on the name alopecia areata incognita or incognita. Are we really, really confident how these grow back? Well, it seems appropriate to use steroids in many of these patients, but I think we have to be aware that maybe, just maybe, some patients with alopecia areata incognita of the androgenetic form of Rakowska respond on their own. Or maybe some of these patients respond to minoxidil, not steroids. And maybe some patients with this subtype respond to steroids. I think we're not there yet. So that's my take on alopecia areata incognita, a fascinating subject area, but I don't think it's fully resolved. I want to thank you for joining me. That's it for today. We reviewed five fascinating studies that have been published in the last month or two. We talked about the use of spironolactone in women over 65. Low, low chances of hyperkalemia, even on patients on ARBs and ACE inhibitors. Dr. Sen and colleagues proposed that maybe really low doses. 25 milligrams has a benefit. And that contrasts with the nice studies by uh, Crystal Lagu and colleagues suggesting that mm, you need 100 or 200 to do anything. So more studies are needed. Tosti and colleagues teaching us that oral minoxidil helps nails grow. So now we have some good data, not only with topical minoxidil, but oral minoxidil helping nails. We talked about the emerging data on alopecia areata and the workplace and alopecia areata affecting work productivity. And the more emotions that a patient had, the more their work productivity was affected. We talked about Dr. Elston's nice study, Plante and colleagues, 2023, looking at what is the histology of alopecia areata when you don't have the peribulbar infiltrate? What kind of features can you see that helps you make these diagnoses? They talked about lymphocytes in the fibrous tracts, melanin in the fibrous tracts, pigment in the fibrous tracts. They didn't talk about eosinophils, and I reviewed the wonderful data emerging over the last several decades about eosinophils and mast cells and alopecia areata, and you can see why eosinophils are also helpful in the diagnosis of alopecia areata. And then we talked about alopecia areata incognita, or alopecia areata incognito, depending on what you want to call it. The favored term is alopecia areata incognita, with an A, a form of shedding that affects women more than men. Do you believe in the Rakowska and Rudnika view, or do you agree with the Rebora and other view about what this is? I present this data to you for you to dive in. Are there, in fact, different forms of acute shedding that occur? There probably are. We have Dr. Piracini suggesting that this is more likely to affect the back. We have Dr. Rudnika and Rakowska suggesting this is more likely to affect the front. We can't agree yet. So I think we are not ready to lump these together that we fully understand these conditions. I think we still need to split. So if you're a lumper or a splitter, you can decide what you want to do. But dive into this fascinating literature. And when you do dive in, make sure to type in alopecia areata incognito with an O and alopecia areata incognita with an A because you got to type both to get the data on both of these. We can't even agree what it's called. Fascinating conditions. The, regardless of what you think, when you see trichoscopy of alopecia areata incognita, look for these wiggly squiggly S-shaped hairs. 
look for the yellow dots. In patients with androgenetic hair loss, those are the most key features. You may not find exclamation mark hairs. You may not find black dots. If you do think you have alopecia areata incognita and you find black dots and exclamation mark hairs and lo and behold, your patient develops a patch of alopecia areata eight months later, I would call that alopecia areata dystrophica of Rebora. If you have a patient with shedding, 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 yellow dots and wiggly, squiggly hairs, and it kind of shuts off, you, you aren't really seeing features of alopecia areata at any time, then maybe, just maybe, you would call that alopecia areata incognita of Rakowska and Rudnika. Alopecia areata incognita androgenica. Those are my takes. I don't think we fully understand this yet. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Thanks to all the authors that have done this incredible work. But for now, in these patients that are really asking for our help, I think it does make sense in alopecia areata incognita to consider the use of steroids, uh, topical steroids, steroid injections, pulse steroids, and topical minoxidil or oral minoxidil. These can be very effective. But in general, these forms of alopecia areata are very responsive to treatment. And the prognosis is quite good for these patients. But be careful about calling it diffuse alopecia areata. And there are some people that feel that diffuse alopecia areata and alopecia areata incognita are one and the same. I don't think they are. I think these are very different conditions. So those are some really important studies to digest. Thanks again for joining me. We're back next week, the second Monday of March. That's a potpourri of studies in telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, tinea capitis, and a whole lot more. And I look forward to welcoming you back here on another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Thanks so much.